0: Hello, I'm Olympia Duhart, and I'm a professor at Nova Southeastern University's Shepard Broad College of Law. This is LST's mini-series about women in the law. Today we're recording in Greensboro, North Carolina at Elon University School of Law. We're moderating a roundtable discussion about how women lawyers are portrayed on screen and by journalists. Now we're going to meet our participants.
1: Hi, I'm Naima Clark. I'm an associate professor in the School of Communications at Elon University. Hi, I'm Jerry Chapman. I'm an immigration lawyer and have practiced
2: immigration law for about 30 years here in Greensboro.
3: Hi, I'm Heather Scavone. I'm on the faculty at Elon Law School and direct the Humanitarian Immigration Law Clinic here.
4: I'm Jennifer Hoverstad, an Elon Law alum and uh, attorney
5: and marketing professional in Raleigh.
6: I'm Doug Tau. I'm a patent attorney at McCoy Mason here in Greensboro, North Carolina.
5: I'm Robin Hudson. I'm an associate justice on the Supreme Court of North Carolina.
7: And I am Kyle McEntee, the executive director of Law School Transparency and a producer for this show.
0: After you've heard the podcast, you recognize that some commentators use provocative terms in describing women litigators. What would you think if you heard opposing counsel described by some of these terms?
1: I found the terms offensive, um, apparently there's this feeling that women can be called anything and we're just supposed to deal with it. Um, And so I, I thought that to call a woman a litigatrix sounds, it sounds cruel and it sounds dismissive. And I'm thinking lawyers have gone to school for a long time and have worked very hard and to be minimized to what almost sounds like A dominant sexual being it was it was wildly inappropriate
4: every time I listened to the episode I I thought that I would be more jaded by the intro of it and hearing litigatrix and it it continued to give me the creepy crawlies which just just like you said very sexual reference um, something that you know in my mind was Certainly, nothing that I would compare myself as a litigator or my female colleagues. The phrase uh, when they describe litigatrix as a woman who's trying to bring pain to men—you know—as a former litigator, I was trying to get along with my male colleagues, and I was trying to make sure that. Um, certainly, as a woman, we we have other things that we probably internally feel like we're trying to overcome, but at no point. Was I trying to bring pain towards men I was working with? Like, I wanted us all to work together to come to solutions. So um, I found that incredibly degrading and um, certainly uh, would have hoped that that is not the actual case with women litigators.
3: I think one thing that struck me was just with the specific vocabulary word you have a gender-neutral term. You don't need to add the x on the end of it, right? You can just be a litigator. You have this fully functioning, sufficient, gender-neutral word. Why would you need to create this this other word and use
5: it? And I completely agree with everything that has been said so far about the term. I was immediately offended, I won- and it made me wonder where it came from. Having been a litigator for 25 years, I'd never heard that term until I listened to this podcast. Because we have a perfectly functioning word that has worked well and doesn't have all the sexual overtones and offensive aspects to it that we just don't need.
7: I'm actually going to pick on someone now, someone who's litigation experience. So, uh, Doug, I want you to imagine that you have a case coming up before the Supreme Court or another court. Uh, You hear that the judge is a judicial diva. What are you going to think about that person? (laughs) I mean... Honestly, I could
6: put two and two together. On one hand, I know what a diva is on the, when someone regularly uses the term diva to describe someone on the street. You know, someone who's uptight, you know, has to have things a particular way, you may have a certain look associated with her. Uh, going into a courtroom, hearing a judicial diva, I suppose I would expect the judge to run the courtroom in a certain way. And uh, I don't know, just
7: very uptight, very, very uptight. So Justice Hudson, someone describes you as a judicial diva. How do you feel?
5: Well, I would be offended by the term for one thing, um, and I'm not even sure exactly what that would mean because any judge who's taken an oath and is doing their job is going to be trying to figure out what's the fair solution to the case, and I'm not sure how being a diva of any kind would, would apply in that situation. Since most judges in in the U.S. are elected, there's some accountability built in. And if somebody is known as a, quote, diva, I'm not sure that that would translate to good service on the bench.
1: But there also is this feeling that, you know, when you say the word diva, you think of someone who is in charge. And I would think the word justice would mean in charge. And so to add, the diva is akin to saying, bitch. And I think that that is that's the offensive part because justices are supposed to be in charge of their courtrooms. That's how, that's why they're the justices. But to then add the diva part is then to demean on a different level.
2: My first reaction was to wonder who used the term and whether there some sour grapes. Did somebody get trashed in court because they weren't prepared or they just took the wrong position or didn't have a, a proper argument to present to the court? and decided to take it out on the judge by using that sort of a demeaning term.
5: Well, the other thing that occurred to me is that when you hear the term diva, a lot of times it's used to somebody who's in entertainment, and you don't usually think of judges as being in the entertainment business. That's not our job. I I can vouch for that. (laughs) but But I think you're probably right that usually when judges are labeled by derogatory terms, it's because somebody had a bad experience in that courtroom, and so they'll come up with whatever kind of term.
0: What I'm getting from the panel is a consensus is that these extra terms used to describe when we already have neutral terms for them are negative and not received positively and offensive. And unnecessary. And unnecessary. Let's move from some of the more provocative terms to the treatment of women lawyers in the media, specifically Kathy Rumler. Were you surprised that the Washington Post decided to focus on the shoe collection of a woman who had achieved the very high post of being White House counsel.
2: I can't believe they would waste space in a, in a well-known publication like that on that issue. I, mean, I I really would like to see that article. I, I cannot believe that it was 99% or that was the sense I got so you know, dominating on that issue. It just seems crazy.
7: So in the first story, they mentioned it on one or two lines, and in the subsequent day, there was an entire story devoted to it which was pretty shocking, I think, to a lot of people. It was heavily criticized.
0: Jerry, you said you couldn't believe it. What do you think is dangerous about that treatment?
2: Well, it's demeaning. It, it doesn't recognize a person's qualifications. As the podcast said, no one would ever do a story on how many belts and what kind of belts a male lawyer had. It just it just seemed to me to be a total waste of space. And it, and it really just—it does have the ability to influence people's thoughts about members of the profession. And we get enough grief as it is. Uh, We don't need that kind of uh, treatment of women lawyers.
6: Conversely, if we were to have an article about a a high-profile attorney and the type of cars he drives, we would promote that. You know, we would look at that differently. Like, oh, he is very successful. We wouldn't belittle that.
5: That's the kind of treatment that has been unequal of women lawyers for for as long as I can remember, as long as I've been in, in the legal field. And certainly before that, too, is focusing on appearance and hairdo and clothing and that kind of stuff. People don't look at, at men lawyers that way. If you're reading a story about a lawyer, it's going to be about what how he is doing his job. And as long as there's that kind of difference in the focus on the appearance aspects of women as lawyers, there's still some inequality going on.
4: I think Justice Hudson brings up a great point about the appearance of women, and um, you know, I'm sure we have law students who are listening to us today who are nodding their heads in agreement, especially the women saying, that's right, I have no idea what I need to be wearing to interviews. I have no idea what I need to be wearing to court to make sure I look appropriate, because there is a lot of pressure on female attorneys to look and dress a certain way in order to really fit in with the industry, and certainly seeing articles like this does not help women who are probably already somewhat insecure in what they're wearing into the courtroom every day to see an article on someone's shoes.
0: And let me do a little personal confession here. Um, You may recall that Dr. Pamela Flock from CBS acknowledged that sometimes she goes on the websites and tries to get fashion tips from the good wife character. I also have gone on the websites to try to buy outfits based on what I see in the character How to Get Away with Murder. But that sort of opens the door for us to consider whether there's something, even though we recognize that there are dangers to really zero in on appearance, is there a subset of women who emulate these portrayals to some extent in the media? And is there anything wrong with that?
1: There was research done, I'm going to say early 2000s, about students who wanted to go into public relations professions because of characters they saw on television. Largely, at the time, it was Melrose Place and Ally McBeal, um, who's a lawyer, but they were looking at the clothing. and, And then when you actually watch those shows and see how short the skirts were, there's no attorney who is wearing that to court. But certainly those students were saying that they liked the style of the people on those shows and wanted to be in those professions because of it. And, you know, certainly Olivia Pope has a clothing collection available at The Limited, which is affordable. Sometimes she will wear one of those outfits on the show, not often.
0: Heather, you're a professor. Do you have any experience with students who maybe don't know how to dress and maybe look to media or look to television or movies to figure out what they should be wearing as future lawyers?
3: Well, I have to say, as we were just discussing Olivia Pope, I was thinking about the kind of disconnect between her apparent very expensive wardrobe uh, and the fact that she never gets paid by her clients. Um, and so, and wondering, you know, how she afforded those things. And that's also coming from the public interest side of women lawyering. We probably have less discussions about this in, in my clinic than, than in some others, because uh, working with refugees, there is, I think, uh, less of an ingrained expectation in the client that you dress a particular way, because the clients are coming from all over the world. However... Good conversations about wardrobe do arise when you think about uh, many of the clients may be veiled uh, or something like that. And so there are there are conversations that organically arise, although I think a little bit less so about what to wear to court.
5: At this point in history, there are lots of experienced women professionals who are in court and who represent all kinds of different clients. And so presumably there would be somebody that, that an inexperienced lawyer or student could talk to about Issues like what's appropriate to wear because you're not trying to create drama like somebody on a television show. You're trying to create the opposite. You know, you don't want to be a distraction from your client's issue if you're going into court. That's what I was advised early in my practices that you don't want them to be thinking about what you're wearing. Just wear something so you'll sort of blend in because otherwise it can hurt your client and your job is to represent your client.
2: I appear in um, court in Charlotte regularly as deportation cases The judges there are conservative. There's two men and one woman. They are very vanilla flavored in their approach. That's probably a compliment to two of them, but at any rate, the people who appear in court are typically very conservatively dressed. Nobody tries to make a statement. Just as as the justice just said, probably the worst thing you can do is to make yourself the issue as opposed to the facts. And when we prepare a client to come to court or to go to the immigration service and have an interview, my most pointed direction to the client is in terms of what you should wear, you should wear something that when you leave that office or you leave the courtroom, if someone asked the judge or the officer what you were wearing, I want that person to say, I don't know. I didn't notice.
5: Exactly.
1: (laughs) Not a $2,500 dress? Uh, No. (laughs) Uh.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer, how have various portrayals of women lawyers on TV, how have they affected your self-image?
4: Sure. Well, I will say, especially while I was in law school, I tried to avoid legal shows like The Plague, but The Good Wife sucked me in. And I do think that the portrayal of Alicia Flore, its it's really fascinating because one of the reasons I enjoyed watching The Good Wife so much, and I, I haven't watched it in a while, but one of the reasons I really got drawn into the show was because... I felt like it did a great job of showing her not only as this female attorney who was coming back from, you know, a time with her kids, but also an attorney who had to juggle a lot of things going on at work, had to juggle being in court, had a terrible marriage and, you know, multiple things going on. So, I will say and I've always stood by the good wife in the sense that it it showed the struggles of actual life for a woman. Um, and while, yes, many of them were, you know, Hollywood upped, and we could debate her morals and ethics all day long. I, I do think that the show overall did a, a great job of just showing how tough it can truly be to, to be a woman, to have a career, to have kids and to attempt to, to keep a marriage together.
7: So Jerry, I know you're a super fan of The Good Wife. How do you feel about what she's said?
2: I agree completely. and And I thought that The show was not just about her, although that was the predominant theme of the show. It was also about uh, her kids, and I thought that was a, they, they treated that very well. It was a small part of the show a lot of the time, but it showed the, the difficulties that they had and the challenges that they were trying to face as they grew up in a world where the layers of, of challenges were just phenomenal. And some of it was realistic, some not, but they, they mixed uh, not, not only the interpersonal issues, but also how do you deal with the kids' use of the Internet? I remember that being a real problem on one of those shows and I thought that was a you know it was well handled. I'm Luke Bierman, the dean of Elon University School of Law. Support for this podcast is provided by Elon Law, the preeminent school for engaged and experiential learning in law. Elon Law offers transformational professional preparation with the only required full-time residency and practice for academic credit. Learn more
1: at law.elon.edu.
0: Dr. Falk, when we spoke to her, said that television does have a history, and she found it positive of portraying women lawyers as tough
5: cookies. Do we agree with that statement? Anybody disagree? You don't expect the lawyers in the TV shows to be entirely realistic. It's going to be a lot more dramatic. They're going to be a lot more elegant and well-dressed and. You are, if you're trying to be like I was, a single mom with two kids, trying to make a living as a litigator on contingent fee cases. You know, one thing that I rarely felt was the least bit glamorous during that period of time. You're just trying to put one foot in front of the other to get from day to day. So, it, yeah, it's there are parts of it that are realistic, but I think it's um not as gritty as it really is.
3: It seems to me that definitely a lot of the the TV portrayals of women attorneys. Uh, They are tough cookies. But this also, to me, seemed to kind of point out dissonance between the uh, media portrayals versus actual lady lawyers in real life, because these tough cookies are often uh, litigators, criminal defense attorneys, uh, sort of potentially corporate-type high-power attorneys, whereas disproportionately women lawyers tend to congregate in what I've heard called the pink ghettos of the law, right? Public interest and government both of which I think have different perceptions around them. And certainly the public interest attorney, I don't think of as stereotypically a tough, a tough cookie, you know, so it just represented another kind of misstep to me between reality and media portrayals.
1: And certainly the tough cookies on TV. My twin sister's a lawyer. I know plenty of lawyers. None of their lives are like that. None of their jobs are like that. Um, my sister was a divorce attorney. One of her best friends is a criminal attorney. They don't, grab their briefcase and storm out of a courtroom. That just does not happen in their day-to-day life. I actually once asked my sister, do you ever just jump up and say, I object, and then yell exception when the judge says no? And she says, no, no one does that unless you're on law and order. And I thought, oh, that's really disappointing. And so, I, you know, And so I think that this idea of the tough cookie, I think the justice is right. You have to do that stuff to make it interesting on television, but I also think that when they do that tough cookie, more and more you're seeing on t v that when they get home, their lives are a mess, and so they're tough cookies at the detriment of what they you know your relationship with the president falls apart, whatever it is um it's <laughs> it's it's you can be tough, but then inside they show this. Weak sniveling woman who, oh my my boyfriend doesn't love me, and oh, my husband has there's photos of him on his on someone's phone. Um, <laughs> and now I'm just gonna take off my wig and tell him off, right? So what is really um, what is the detriment of being that tough cookie?
5: Although I have to say that some of the, the real women lawyers that are working in prosecutor's offices or public defender's offices are some of the toughest cookies I know. And they may not be glamorous and dramatic all the time, but they are tough as nails and are really good lawyers. And they have a tough time juggling, you know, when they have kids at home and a, problems in a relationship. But it's not going to be, you know, great fodder for TV necessarily. <laughs> but I also love
4: what you said, Naima. Um... Discussing Viola Davis's character on how to get away with murder is that there they did portray, yes, a woman's life was completely broken. But one of the things that I loved, and I thought of it when I was listening to the podcast, is that she is very protective over the things that mean something to her. And there's a lot to say, again, we could debate decisions that she makes throughout the show, but there's a lot to say about that, where not only is she the tough cookie and she breaks down sometimes. But she also recognizes there's a group of people around her that she feels like she's responsible for protecting, which I think a lot of women can certainly relate to. So it's um, there's small nuances, and certainly maybe not everyone would pick up the nuances uh, if they're just enjoying the show for pure entertainment value. But there are those small things there where I think a lot of women can relate. You raised a point
0: about small nuances, and I think we've been talking a lot about how to get away with murder, And I wanted to ask whether or not there's any danger, uh, whether we're talking about how to get away with murder or the good wife or to go back to Legally Blonde, that character. uh, Is there any danger when one character represents the entire group? Are we worried that people will look at a character who has questionable morals, ethics, other ways you guys have described her, and think that this is bad for women lawyers? Um, And specifically, is there any danger when we're dealing with a group that's historically underrepresented in the media?
5: I think there's some danger, and I think it's not necessarily to the women who are lawyers or other people who are in the legal profession. I think the danger is that the public thinks that's what lawyers are like, and that's not necessarily promoting a professionalistic view of lawyers in the eyes of the public, and I think that lawyers have taken a beating in the public eye for the last several decades, and I'm not sure that's healthy because I think we all need to have confidence in our lawyers and our judges in order for the system to work. And if people think that lawyers are, you know, out there having affairs with their clients and, you know, making tons of money, and that's not necessarily great. But I think more to people who aren't involved in the legal profession than to people who are, who tend to be more likely to know what it's really like.
2: This isn't exactly on point, but to me, that, that question brought up two movies, To Kill a Mockingbird and A Few Good Men. And Gregory Peck's portrayal in that movie had a profound effect on me and still does. Tom Cruise, I don't hold in the same regard that I do Gregory Peck, but that performance was just spellbinding. That, that courtroom scene was, I, I, I watch it every four or five years just because it's so, so much electricity. But those two portrayals, I don't know that that's necessarily the typical male lawyer portrayal, but that's the kind of portrayal that lawyers need, male or female we probably need the other stuff because it's more entertaining. But those profound portrayals, I think are very important also.
1: There's this constant balance when we talk about television programming. It's great to see this image of um a Latina or an African American woman or who or whatever um background. So there is at least another voice on TV. But you're right that every time it happens, there's some ethical issue that comes up. So the story is there, and then we do get to see Viola Davis and wonderful moments with Cecily Tyson, but then she also, you know, may or may not have murdered someone. So is that the trade-off for a TV show to remain on the air? I think that in Shondaland, yeah, that's the trade-off.
5: Well, and there are lots of shows like uh, Boston Legal, where there was some questionable ethical things going on with the men and women. And so hopefully what you get eventually is a whole range of ethical behaviors for women and men in the legal profession so that people can see. What you don't want is for all of the portrayals of women as lawyers to be somebody whose morals or ethics are challenged. You'd like them to be fully portrayed the way that we are in real life.
7: Can anyone name a woman lawyer on TV or movies that is portrayed as an ethical attorney?
4: So I was trying to think of this as we were talking. and The best example I can come up with is Suits. So we have the the main partner at the firm, Jessica, who is a strong black female attorney, and she does a fantastic job. And while there are struggles throughout the multiple seasons of the show that she encounters, um, I think she is really introduced as this character who is is walking a fine line and trying to support her team. There's also another minority character, also black female, on the show, and she goes by Rachel, who encounters personal ethical problems, but her character, you want to cheer for her because she's constantly trying to improve herself and to support those people um, around her as well as her team at work. So that that's probably the, the two I could come closest to saying as far as female minorities that I've seen on TV.
0: Isn't there an argument that this is just television and we know that all police officers are not like the cops on law and order, or forensic specialists don't dress as well as they do on CSI, you know, or doctors aren't like the doctors in the show house.
3: Right. Well, and some of the negative portrayals, I think you can account for by the fact that there are just negative cultural stereotypes about lawyers, generally that exist in society already. So it's not surprising that they would also apply to lawyer women on TV. The things that I think of specifically are like workaholism and uh, drinking. Um, and I think of Olivia Pope with this as well, right? She's constant, somehow she looks amazing all the time, even though she never sleeps and she drinks bottles of red wine. She weighs like 110 pounds. But um, well, she only eats popcorn. Yeah. So. <laughs> but, you know, there are these sort of negative um, stereotypes about lawyers generally. And so they, they happen within the underrepresented groups as well.
7: So I want to talk a little bit more about the underrepresented groups. And so, Doug, there are not many Asian men on television. Has that alienated you in any way? Have you thought about it much?
6: I mean, yeah, it bothers me to a certain extent. Um, you know, I have a cousin. He's he's a lawyer, but he's also an actor. I think uh, he grew up wanting to be an actor, but because there were a lack of roles for Asian men, he had to turn to alternative career. Um, I think he made a great choice, but probably not his first choice. You know... When you think of action movies, the only type of Asian leads you think of are those that participate, like in martial arts flicks. You don't think of a, uh, you know, an Asian man replacing Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, or Vin Diesel, who have you, you don't think of these big, strong, muscular uh, Asian men. You think of them as being, you know, a martial artist. You think of comedies. I can't think of a comedy where an Asian man is the lead role. It's always the secondary character. You know, romantic interest. I can't think of a single Asian actor and a romantic drama. It's just a lack of roles, period. And in fact, when people see me, uh, people the only Asian people that they can think about is either uh, that, who's that tall basketball player, sorry. Oh, Yao Ming? (laughs) Yao Ming, Ming, or Jackie Chan, or Bruce Lee, you know? (laughs) I mean, they're great people, but that's the only three people people can think about, you know? So, yeah, there's a a complete lack of, uh, I guess, Asian role models besides great martial artists and a tall basketball player.
1: Television is built on patterns and they're built on what works. And so, you know, if you look at what Shonda Rhimes has done by bringing many diverse people in ensemble casts, she she has tried to change the landscape of TV to make it actually more realistic to what our worlds look like. Uh, and so in some cases, if you look at the shows that have been put on the air since grays and scandals started to become really popular, there are more diverse casts if they're ensemble casts. But you're exactly right. Like if there's a show where there's one lead, it's typically a white male. That said, if you look at, an ABC is a great example because they've really taken a lead in trying to have Comedies about diverse families, and so there is Blackish, there is Off the Boat, which um, gets some mixed reviews, but the show, in some ways, is very, very sweet and um, and has its moments. And because of the success of those two shows, other networks are trying to do diverse family sitcoms as well. Again, it's not going to be a romantic lead. But at least there's some effort because, again, there's an audience that's just not people of color, but there's a wide audience watching these family shows.
5: It seems like it takes the studios
1: a while to catch up. Yes. With the diversification of the population. Mm-hmm. And it's all tied to money. And so if, if there's money for Scandal or for Quantico,
5: then maybe there'll be another Asian woman leading a show. You've got Lucy Liu and, as Watson in elementary, right? Mm-hmm.
7: <laughs> so what kind of responsibilities do these show producers have to go beyond the money because media is such a powerful socializer?
1: It's hard to go beyond the money in television, right? That's how you get your shows. Um, obviously online there's a platform you can create content, but... That's not quite the same. So, you know, Shonda's in a different field. Obviously, Shonda can do whatever she wants and she will get a show and she'll have a whole night of TV. But other producers, for example, the producer of a show called Power on Stars, the producer of that show actually has said that, you know, she just wants to tell good stories. And so she has as many different people in the room as possible. And, you know, if the cast is diverse, the cast is diverse, but her job is just to tell good stories.
5: And obviously their, their job is to make money for, the, for whoever they're working for. But it seems like that to an extent that it can be driven by the population as it gets more and more diverse, you know, like you had that backlash from the Oscars, the Oscars so white, social media went nuts and put some pressure on the academy to do some more noticing of the diversity of the population. And so it can kind of bubble up, a think.
7: So I think one interesting point here with the focus on the economics is that we're giving them a pass. Because money drives the business, but money also drives the business of law. And yet we still believe that lawyers have ethical responsibilities to portray the profession in such a way that it doesn't dampen the perception, uh, which has downstream effects on access to justice. Is there not room for some of that responsibility here?
3: I mean I think you've identified one of the kind of unique things about the legal profession though that it is self-policing and television doesn't have that as a requirement of its profession. I think that's you know that's bad for all of us out in TV land, but it is one of the unique features of
4: lawyering, right? But the thing about television is that the landscape's going to be changing over the next 20 years. I mean we already see on Apple TV that there's a periscope app So you can watch anyone live streaming, showing their daily life. And perhaps some of this, while, yeah, we can give the producers a pass, money does talk in Hollywood. And that's certainly something that those of us at this table can't control. What we can start doing is actually showing what the profession looks like. So through multiple mediums, whether it's Periscope, Facebook Live, um, all these live streaming channels, as, as well as social media, perhaps it becomes our responsibility to show people what it actually looks like and to make them interested um, in more of the reality of the profession versus what's portrayed on TV. So I guess we'll be looking for real housewives of the
0: courtroom or some <laughs> version of that. Why, why
4: not? You know, it's, uh, I mean, assuming obviously something like that could very well be very scripted, but it's, it's really our responsibility to to show what it's like living that day-to-day. Whether they're dysfunctional or complicated or complex, when we
0: interviewed a screenwriter for How to Get Away with Murder, uh, she sort of asserted that people can identify more with very complex characters. Do you guys agree with that statement? That we like to see people who are kind of messy and juggling all of these multiple
5: responsibilities? I think people like to see characters that they think are real, that sort of seem to ring true, and uh, real people are complicated. So that would make sense to me. And then the question is, though, why don't the male
3: attorneys, why are they, you know, able to play the field, and they're not constantly failing in their romantic relationships, and they're able to be interesting without having that dysfunction in their personal relationships?
6: I think I'm an outlier here, kind of as that guy who grew up in the 90s watching those family sitcoms where everything is so simple and clean and all problems were resolved before the end of the episode. I have a hard time, you know, connecting with the protagonists today. They always have some issues or they do just – they just make dumb decisions that for some reason carry on with me and I cannot root for them for the entire series. You know? <laughs> Usually my favorite character in the show is like some secondary person that's not, you know – He's done nothing wrong because they don't get any airtime.
2: I, I would follow up Heather's comment. I remember on L.A. Law, the the uh, character, whose name was Arnie. He was playing the field, but he was a disaster. Yeah. All of those relationships entered with him going down in flames. So uh, maybe he's the exception that proves the general rule. I do think that good character examples, if you will, of lawyers is our responsibility. And it can be, I don't, you know, the technology that you mentioned a second ago. I've never heard of some of that stuff. But I, I think that what we're doing right here, I would hope, is a positive comment or example to the people who are, are watching today and maybe listening. But our, our ability to speak in public, uh, whether by invitation or we just create some event that we're going to you know, use as a, as a sounding board for whatever we seem to be interested in, can be a very positive example to the public as to what lawyers not just doing the courtroom, but how how you think and which, what impact you have on society.
1: And we have power that, you know, we never had before. You know, you used to have to write a letter to the network and hope that Brandon Tartikoff at NBC would see it. But now, you know, there's social media and you can send a tweet to Shonda and... She will write back. She often doesn't care what you think, but she'll write back. Um, And so I encourage my students, I encourage anyone who is ever listening to me when I talk about media representations to use social media and let people know about the stories they're telling.
0: I wanna thank all of our participants today for such a very lively discussion at Eli University School of Law. Next week, we'll be discussing the Leaky Pipeline. I'm Olympia Duhart. This episode was produced by Kyle McEntee. Theme music by Brad Kemp. Thank you to Kimber Russell, Marissa Olson, Ashley milne Karen Ulrich, Stacy, and Susan Poser for all that you do for us. Women in the Law is a production of Law School Transparency. To learn more about LST, visit LawSchoolTransparency.com. To learn more about this mini-series, visit lstradio.com slash women.